Our text this morning is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. The topic there, Barnabas encourages the Christians in Antioch in whom he can see the grace of God. The title of our message, I See Graced People. Verse 19. Wait for it. Wait for it. Verse 19. It was either that or it came from inner grace. How about graced out? I'm just trying to get a feel for my audience. I think I have a feel. <laughs> Verse 19. <laughs> uh, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, if we are to derive blessing and insight from this word, it's going to be because your Holy Spirit is here to guide and direct our thinking, to open up our hearts so that the hearing of the word read and taught would find rich and fertile ground within us. We appreciate these looks at the first church, and especially this church in Antioch, Lord, a church that's very much like us, pagans who were saved out of their idolatry into a glorious and joyous relationship with God through Jesus Christ, trying to figure out exactly who you are, how to reveal you, overflowing with joy, filled with grace. Lord, we either are or want all of those things. And so be here today, Lord, in a powerful way. Go from person to person, from heart to heart. Reveal your Son. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. What does the grace of God look like? Well, apparently it was visible in Antioch. In verse 23, you're told that Barnabas had seen the grace of God in these believers. Verse 26 indicates that non-believers could see it because they coined a new name for believers previously unknown, calling them Christians, which means like Christ. Their countenance and their character and their conduct was so radically different than it had been and from the surrounding culture that it was obvious the grace of God was at work in them and through them. 
reveling in God's unmerited favor in saving them, they spoke and served and shared with each other and with others in ways that were seasoned with grace. I want that, and so do you if you're a Christian. We want to appear so Christ-like that we make grace visible to other people. An analysis of the activities of Barnabas in Antioch can help us. He came upon people who had been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. Barnabas knew grace needed to be encouraged if it was to continue to show and grow. So Barnabas encouraged these Christians to abide and to abound in the grace of God. We can and should do the same. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you see the grace of God, encourage the Christ-like to abide. And number two, when you see the grace of God, encourage the Christ-like to abound. First of all, in verses 20, uh, excuse me, 19 through 24, when you see the grace of God, encourage the Christ-like to abide. For the first few years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the believers were all Jews. They were Jews who were born again, and they continued in that culture. Social prejudices between Jews and non-Jews, who are called Gentiles, kept the good news from spreading. All of that changed when Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, was stoned. Luke takes us back to that event. And so again in verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. The farther a Jew lived from Jerusalem, the more likely he was to have dealings with Gentiles. While many of the scattered Jewish believers spoke only to other Jews when they came to these cities, those who were originally from places like Cyprus and Cyrene were comfortable telling Gentiles about the Lord. They had more dealings with Gentiles farther from Jerusalem. They were more open to those relationships. And so as they would uh, encounter Gentiles, they would talk to them about the Lord. And so Luke focuses our attention on the city of Antioch. It was the third largest city of the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It boasted a population estimated anywhere from two to 500,000 people. I get a big kick out of it because when I read commentaries during the week, uh, like this one, they, you know, they're talking about Antioch, and they say and Antioch was an extremely wicked city. Well, every city in, was an extremely wicked city. You know, every city you read about in the Bible was an extremely wicked city. Uh, and, and so uh, it was, and they had had its own particular brand of wickedness uh, involving the temple of Daphne, whoever she was, and those kinds of things. But uh, it was just full of pagan idolaters. And, and, and now these... Uh, individuals who were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene, they came there and they began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and a great change was affected in that city. Now they spoke, it says, to Hellenists. These were Greeks, Gentiles, who had nothing to do with Judaism in contrast to the Jews of verse 19. So there's a contrast. Some spoke only to Jews, but these men spoke to the Hellenist Gentiles of verse 20. It says they preached. Now, don't be intimidated by the word preaching. It doesn't mean they stood behind a pulpit and delivered Bible studies. 
Doesn't mean you have to go to Staples and buy one of those tabletop podiums. Have you ever seen those? They turn any tabletop into a, a podium. It's a little pulpit that you stand behind. Go to work tomorrow, you're carrying this thing. What do you got? That's my pulpit. You're what? My pulpit, my podium. Lunchtime, I'm going to get up on the table. I'm going to preach the Bible to you. I mean, that's not exactly what it means at all. It means their changed lives preached to the people they encountered. Jesus was so real to them, they couldn't help but reveal him and talk about him. You know, we talk about evangelism, and we should, and how to share our faith, and we should, and we even have classes and ways of doing that. Uh, and, And all of that's good. It's great. We need to do that. At the same time, we ought to just be very natural about telling people what's going on in our life. Hey, what'd you do yesterday? Oh, we went to church. Well, we go to Calvary Chapel. You ever heard of it? You should. It's got the greatest biscuits and gravy this side of the Mississippi. Uh, Or whatever you want to say. Or, you know, this is what's happening in my family. You know, we, we, and so we prayed about it. Or I heard about this tragedy. Yeah, and et cetera, et cetera. And just, you know, just share what you do as a Christian and who you are as a Christian. Just talking to people in a very natural way because you know Jesus Christ. You've met him personally. He's alive. And he fills you with his power and his strength. A lot of times I think the devil comes in and tries to freak you out. He says, you can't talk to this person about anything less than the full-orbed, complete gospel, and you probably don't know it enough. So you're like, oh, Lord, I want to talk. I want so much to talk to this person, but I just can't. You try to do these things, but you just can't, Nemo. But anyway, <laughs> it's my little granddaughter loves finding Nemo. Nemo. She loved Nemo too, but it's the foreign version of finding Nemo. Anyway, and yes, we have ridden the new Nemo submarine ride. But anyway, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about at all now. <laughs> But a lot of times we're just overwhelmed. It's like an overload. I can't really talk about Christ. And so then we don't talk about anything. We talk about what everybody talks about. And what is that? The weather. I can't stand talking about the weather. I've told you this before. Man, is it hot. Wow, you just figured that out? I, didn't, I had no idea it was hot. I'm going to go home and take my coat off now, you know? I mean, so, you know, and so we just want to talk. Hey, I was in prayer. We were, you know, I was at the Calvary Cafe on Sunday. Where's that? Oh, it's at my church, you know? Or uh, out in the courtyard at church, I saw an old friend or this happened or that happened. Just be natural and, and you'll find yourself more able to preach Jesus Christ. Then in verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, literally, it reads, in believing, they turned to the Lord. It's really just one activity, believing and turning to the Lord. God receives whoever will believe in him. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, God has redeemed you on the cross of Jesus Christ, and he saves you if you will believe. It's by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith, plus nothing, you're saved. There's no work of righteousness. There's no rules that you keep. There's nothing you can do to commend yourself to God. If there was anything you could do, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking to somebody, and I thought, you know, if there was anything you could do, how would you know if you had done it enough? And this is why people have problems with things like, we talked last week about people who add to the gospel things like baptism, for example. Well, you have to believe and have faith and be baptized. Well, now... What kind of baptism exactly? Sprinkling? Full immersion? 
What words need to be spoken over me? What should I wear when I'm baptized? And you think, well, that's silly. But no, these are the things that people, they get into. It's like, okay, if, if it's baptism that saves me, then I better know how to be baptized. And I can never really know, can I? Exactly how to be baptized and exactly where to be baptized, when to be baptized, by who to be baptized, with what words to be baptized. And so I'm, I'm never really sure if I'm saved. And the truth is, people who are religious, who follow these rules and regulations, they don't know if they're saved. They're hoping that they're saved. When I was in the Roman Catholic tradition of my youth, we believe many of the same things that Protestants believe, but the truth is a Roman Catholic has no real hope of salvation until after death and you wake up and you figure out where you are. And, and because you may not have received enough of the sacraments. And there are some Catholic apologists who will tell you flat out from Roman Catholic doctrine that if you don't go to Mass every Sunday of your life, you cannot be saved. And if you've missed, if you're here, if you're Catholic here this morning, you're missing Mass, it's too late for you. <laughs> It's over. I mean, it's not funny, but it's, you know what I mean? And, and, but it points out, I never, if, 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 if salvation has anything to do with my works of righteousness, I can never know if I'm saved or not. And so that's why the gospel is whoever will believe. And then this grace comes flooding into my heart. I realize that Jesus Christ's death on the cross redeemed the human race. I believe that, and I am saved. And so the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. We met Barnabas before in the book of Acts. There we learned that his uh, nickname was the Son of Encouragement. What a great nickname. I have a lot of nicknames, none of which I like. But anyway, when there was a financial need in Jerusalem, he sold property he owned and gave the money to be distributed among the needy. That was, so far, that's the big event in Barnabas' life. I mean, he was an example of a guy that just saw the need, met the need, encouraged the body, wonderful believer. Why send Barnabas? Well, we can't know for sure exactly how they arrived at their decision. It was probably a combination of many factors. Barnabas was originally from Cyprus, so he would relate well to the fellows in Antioch who were sharing Christ with Gentiles. Barnabas was faithfully serving the church at Jerusalem. Barnabas was obviously available and willing to go. Barnabas and the leadership there obviously sought the leading of the Holy Spirit. A lot of factors go into when and where and how you might be called to serve God in his church. Your part is to stay busy serving, to be faithful in your service, and to make yourself available. And you don't ever do those things so that you will get to something bigger or better. You do them as if they were a great work in and of themselves. You do them as unto the Lord. It's not that the, you know, a, a greater work, it's that the work itself is great if it's done as unto the Lord. Verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, it was obvious to Barnabas these Gentiles were genuinely saved. They had turned to God from the wicked pagan idolatry of their Greek culture. 
Grace is God's unmerited favor upon a person who believes in Jesus Christ. And you would imagine it would affect radical, wonderful changes that will make even a visible difference in life and living. And Barnabas was glad by this. Everyone should be glad when a person gets saved. They're not giving up anything. They're gaining something, eternal life in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, Barnabas teaches us at least one important lesson here. You must encourage those whom God has saved by grace. You don't leave them alone and hope for the best. The first thing you encourage them to do is to abide. The word translated continue means to abide. Persevere would be another excellent translation of the word. So would the word cleave. And so Barnabas encouraged them to abide by the truth of God's word, to cleave to Jesus Christ and fellowship with the church, and to persevere to the end. And these are things that he would continually encourage them in and that we should continually encourage one another in. And so, you know, a lot of people, they get that. They understand words like abide and persevere and continue. But some people are more visual, and, and so God gives them an illustration. There's a picture here to help you understand abiding if you need that. The word translated purpose in this verse, as in purpose of heart, it happens to be the same word that translates the showbread that was in the Jewish temple. Twelve specially prepared loaves were arranged in two rows on a table that stood in the holy place just before the presence of God, and they remained there for a week. Each Sabbath, fresh loaves would replace the old, and then the priests were required to eat the old loaves in the holy place. What would this mean to the Gentile converts in Antioch? Well, they weren't familiar with temple worship because they had never been Jews, but neither are we, but we still talk about the temple and its symbolism. And so Barnabas gave them this simple symbolism, and here's what it might have meant to them. It might have meant that they were like that showbread in the holy place. They were to see themselves as specially prepared, separated from the world, and perpetually in the presence of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then second, it would mean that like the priests in the temple, they were sustained by feeding on the bread of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of uh, the mouth of God. And so, so it was, it's kind of a picture for them. And some of us like pictures more than we like logic or, or facts. And so Barnabas gives them this picture. And it's simple, really. While in the world, we keep ourselves separated by remembering we are perpetually in the presence of God. We're like those loaves just hanging out with God in the holy place, only for us, the holy place is anywhere we are because the Lord is there with us. Most of you won't be able to relate to this illustration, but I know some people who slack off when their boss isn't looking. Can you imagine that? I know you can't because you're Christians and, and you're all, you have this high work ethic and you're always working hard. But there are people I've been told, you know, if the boss is in vicinity, earshot, or, or you know, visually, uh, you know, they're, they're working, you know, their fingers are bleeding and, you know, they're just working their fingers to the bone. 
Where's the boss? He's gone to lunch. Me too, you know, and stuff, and they just kick back. And so what, what um, Barnabas is encouraging the believers, he's saying, look, uh, like that showbread, you are 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the presence of God. He's there with you all the time. You're perpetually having that presence. And so not in a, not in a bad way. I mean, I, you know, it's not to think of God as an overbearing supervisor, but you would hope that you wouldn't want to slack off as a Christian, but we do. See, we do. And this is where Barnabas comes in. He says, hey, you know, you're excited about the Lord and, and you're filled with the grace of God and you've turned f- to God from pagan idolatry, but there's the world out there and there's the flesh and there's the devil and you need to abide in Christ or you're going to get tripped up and stumble and fall. And so, you know, Jesus is with you 24-7. Think about that. He has specially chosen you, and he's going to walk with you. And so when those temptations come and you think no one is looking, that is the farthest thing from the truth that is possible because God is right there with you. And when you start thinking that you can't do what he's asked you to do or the temptation is too great or the struggle is, is beyond you, he's given you the bread of life. Everything you need to sustain you is in that living word of God. And so, you know, and so he's got this twofold illustration that just, just picks you back up and you think, okay, yes, I, I, I can do it. The Lord is with me and he's strengthening me. I'm going to abide. I'm going to continue. I'm going to endure. I'm going to persevere to the end. And so Barnabas saw that the believing Gentiles in Antioch were off to a great start. And this is always true of people who are born again. Your sins are forgiven. You're given newness of life. You're excited. You're off to a great start. He encouraged them to abide. And then he turned his attention to ensuring they would abound. And so in verses 25 through 30, when you see the grace of God, encourage the Christ-like to abound. We'll see, we see by reading this section that the believers needed regular, systematic encouragement from God's word. They needed to be taught, and to be taught, they needed a teacher. Barnabas is not presented to us as a gifted teacher. He may have been able enough to teach, but he loved the Lord and the Lord's people too much to settle for anything less than the best for them. And so he, uh, as a man of vision, he thought, I need to get a teacher, a regular, systematic Bible teacher for these people. And in verse 25, he departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. It had been anywhere from seven to ten years since Saul, the man we also know as the Apostle Paul, left Jerusalem for Tarsus. He seemed to have been forgotten in the book of Acts, but not by God and not by Barnabas. And Saul's time had now come. By the way, God is in no hurry to promote you. Let him use you as he sees fit and promote you in his own time. Never promote yourself. In verse 26, and when, they had, and when he had found him. Now, I should stop and mention that the word for found indicates an intense searching. It's the same word used to describe Joseph and Mary when they realized that they had left Jesus back in the temple at age 12, and they went back searching for him. It's the kind of searching that a parent does for a lost child. And all that tells us is that Paul was hard to find. Saul was hard to find. Uh, he, he hadn't made a name for himself. He wasn't famous. We don't really know what he was doing. 
Uh, commentators feel that he, he may have established some churches in uh, the, reg the regions there of Tarshish and Galatia. He may have undergone some of the persecution we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 during that time. We're just not sure. We can be pretty sure he was active doing something because, after all, you see his personality always doing something to, to promote the kingdom of God. But, but he wasn't famous. He, he, no one really knew where he was. He was just laboring for the Lord in obscurity. And Barnabas found him. Barnabas, uh, for his part, with real perseverance, he, you know, the Lord must have really impressed upon his heart, you find Saul. And Barnabas went after him, and he found him. And, and, and what a great, I, I, you know, Barnabas probably had the kind of joy that a parent would have when he found his lost child. And, and can you imagine this son of encouragement? Saul, I've been looking for you, man. You're a hard guy to find. Guess what? God's going to start using you in a new way, he told me. And, and so they return to Antioch. Verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You know from reading the letters that Saul, the apostle Paul, would write, letters like, uh, well, any of them, you know, Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, that he was a linear, logical, systematic Bible teacher, point by point. He would later say of his, te his own teaching that he taught the entire counsel of the Word of God. You must never stray from linear, logical, systematic Bible study. It may not always be exciting, though it need not be dull, but you cannot and you will not abound in grace without it. This is something that every generation and several times during a generation we struggle with. There's, there becomes a, a danger in our lives that we're we still going to be just teaching through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We need to add something to that because it's just not enough. It's not exciting. And, and I understand that, you know, I, I, you know there, are, there is such a thing as dull Bible study. I, I you're saying amen, I know, but, uh, you know, I understand that. Uh, and, and yet, uh, so often, you know, we just get this impression that, well, you know, we know the Bible. What do we need to study the Bible anymore for? In fact, there's a whole movement right now out there, the kind of a postmodern, uh, you know, church thing going on that, you know, why tell people what they already know? Let's move on to something else. And, and so it's a very difficult struggle. And, and so Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he looked at these people. He said, you've been saved by grace. You're abiding in grace. If you're going to abound, there's something you need, and I know just the guy. He's going to take you verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the scriptures of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and he's going to expound these great truths of the Word of God and some of this stuff you get into, and it's, it's, it's even a little bit difficult. Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, some of those books, it's like, wow, I really need to dig in here. I need to study this. What does this really mean? And, and it, can, it can involve work and effort on our part, and yet you cannot abound in grace without it. Now, the believers were telling non-believers about Jesus. They were getting saved. Barnabas was encouraging them to abide. Saul was teaching them how to abound. We all have our giftings. 
We need to know what our gift or gifts are, and we need to know what our gifts aren't. I think a lot of Christians spend their entire Christian life, or a good portion of it, trying to believe that they have a gift that God hasn't given them. I know men who've been in the ministry for years, struggling year after year after year. Never, and it's not a numerical thing, it's just there's a struggle in their ministry, and they're just not called to that ministry. That means they've abandoned what they are called to, and they're, they're doing something they're not called to, so everybody's a loser in that situation. Some of it, quite honestly, has to do with, uh, you know, wanting to, to always, you know, be promoted and to be doing something more. Learn to be content. Figure out who you are in God's economy and be the best that you can be at that place where God has put you. Don't worry about getting any place else. Minister where you are. Know what your gifts are. Know what your gifts aren't. The name Christians is variously translated as Christ followers or Christ-like. Uh, the Jews would not have given them this name because Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, and they wouldn't have wanted to identify uh, believers in Jesus Christ with their Messiah. So it's been suggested that this was somehow a derogatory name given by pagans to ridicule them, but I don't think so because I think it was that these believers in Antioch were so full of God's grace, so overflowing with it, that they were in a sense like Jesus Christ himself. People looked at them and saw something about Jesus in their life. They were like Jesus. Saul's teaching was revealing Jesus to them more and more. They were seeing the Lord and being empowered to act and to react as He would. They were abiding in grace, and now they were abounding in grace. And so when people saw them, they thought, wow, those people, are, they're like Jesus. These stories we hear about Jesus Christ and who He was and what He did, His character and His countenance and His conduct, we see a little bit of that in these people. They are Christ-like Luke gave an example of abounding in grace now as the chapter closes. He says in verse 27, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Here in the first century, we're at a time before, obviously, the New Testament was written and compiled. Prophets, along with the apostles, were the men who laid the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, you read, especially in the writings of Saul, the apostle Paul, that pastor, teachers, and evangelists are the men who continue the work that was founded in the first century. Prophets would travel from place to place, bringing words of encouragement and mostly prophecy was speaking forth the Word of God. It was uh, giving a word of encouragement. But it also included sometimes predicting future events. Agabus was going about prophesying a great famine. Now, Agabus will uh, meet again later in the book of Acts. Uh, he's a very flamboyant kind of a prophet. He's going to prophesy later that Paul, when he goes down to Jerusalem, is going to be uh, taken prisoner. But in order to, to do that, he takes 
Paul's belt off of him and he wraps it around his hands and he says, so will the man who wears this belt be bound in Jerusalem. And so he was kind of a prop prophet, if you will. He used props in his print. So I don't know what he would do here. Can you imagine him trying to get across a famine? Now, Agabus, do you have a word for us? And after about five minutes, he'd croak out or something, you know, and do you have an interpretation for that? Great famine has come. So, I, I mean, it's funny, but I think he was, I think he acted this out somehow. And uh, there are other things I'm thinking that I won't tell you about how you might want to act this out. It's to be good for a Christian improv night that we're not going to have. But anyway... <laughs> This prophecy is the background for Luke to describe what abounding grace looks like. It's an example of abounding in grace. They got saved by grace. They were abiding in grace. Paul was teaching them to abound in grace. What does that look like? Well, they determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And so we find out that abounding grace is something active, it must do something. It can't hear about a real need and not act to meet that need. Brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, especially in Judea, were struggling because of this famine, or they would be. We who are not, we have to help our brothers and sisters, and so they, they determined to send relief. Abounding grace is sacrificial in nature. It costs something. But we see that it doesn't ever need to be coerced or manipulated. When I am abounding in grace, I give sacrificially according to my ability. Maybe it's my time. Maybe it's my talent. Maybe it's my treasure. But I give. And, I mean, that's what grace is, isn't it? Isn't, you know, the grace of God, God giving of himself, the revelation of his love and giving Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise from the dead that we might be saved? What greater gift could God have given? What more could God give than the life of his son so that we might be saved? And how can we do any less? How can we hear of a, a real need and not be moved by grace to meet that need with the finances that God has given us, with the, the, the gifts and the abilities that God has given us. And so this, hopefully as we're studying through the Word of God, as they were teaching through the Word and all, th this is how grace abounds. Now you read that they sent the relief to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Originally in the church, when we uh, first encountered Barnabas and a little bit after that, Benevolence funds were given to the apostles to distribute. They eventually chose deacons to take over the work. Now there's a mention of elders in the church at Jerusalem. You can't make too much of it. It doesn't tell us what the structure of the church in Jerusalem was, but it shows us that there is a maturing in their understanding of organization and administration. And this is typical in church life. Churches have to respond to needs. And, and they organize and reorganize. I only mention that, and uh, what I want to mention is that so much, everybody wants to get everything just nailed down all the time. And you'll hear people tell you there's, there's really only one possible biblical way of leading the church, and this is it. Of course, there's three different views on what the one possible only biblical way of leading the church is. And these guys all argue with each other. And so that only tells me that there ain't one. 
And so what you do see is that the church was organized. There was administration. There are pastors. There's deacons. There's elders. They work together. And they work together for the glory of God, by the grace of God. And we don't want to get sidetracked all the time into this minutia of exactly how everything has to be done. You know what it ends up being? It ends up being you serving on a committee somewhere, wanting to pull your hair out rather to chew broken glass than be there. That's what it ends up being. Instead of just praying, seeking the Lord, Lord, what do you want to do? How do you want to reveal your grace? It's so frustrating. Some of you are ready to jump out of your chair and say, amen, brother. I mean, I've been on committees like that. It seemed, man, this is what we need to do. No. You know, we can't do that because we have to have this vote or that vote and something. So, you know, they, they got together and they, they, hey, here's some money. Distribute it. And so what a beautiful thing. Now, as far as teaching us more about what abounding grace looks like, we also see that abounding grace follows through. It isn't just a momentary emotion. We're not just moved by an image or an idea. It's something that accomplishes ministry. It is something that is faithful. It is required in the stewards of the Lord that we be found faithful. And really, in the end, that's all the Lord is going to judge us on. Not the size of our ministry, not the greatness of it, not the vastness of it, not how much we gave of our time or talent or our treasure, but were we faithful in what God called us to do? And this is why it becomes so important, piggybacking on what I said earlier, we can't afford to not be doing what God wants us to do because we're busy doing what we want to do. Because one day it's just going to be you and Jesus, and he wants so much to reward you. I know people have this picture of God that he's mean and he's cruel and, and that he's always, like, on you, you know, riding you and stuff. Uh, to, to, you know, don't, don't have any fun over here. Or You're a Christian now. You can't do that and all this kind of stuff. The Lord wants to reward you. He wants to give and give and give. We see that on the cross. We see it everywhere in the Bible. And when you see the Lord on that wonderful day when you die or when the church is raptured and he looks at you, he wants to, and you'll know that he wants to reward you. And all you need to do is be able to say, I was faithful in the little things that God gave me to do. I didn't get distracted by the great things I thought I would one day do. I didn't just sit around doing nothing because there wasn't anything great. I did those little things. And, and, and you're looking and saying, Lord, this is nothing. I, this is nothing. I didn't even know this was for you. I just thought I was raising my children and loving my husband and loving my wife and going to church. And I mean, I, and no, and the Lord says, no, no, this, this was for me. You did that for me. Your life would have been very different if it wasn't for me. And so all of those things you did with your whole heart willingly, they were for me. And you'll say, well, Lord, what about the pygmy in Africa? I never got to that guy. He says, I sent somebody else over there to the pygmy in Africa. I'll talk to him in a minute. I'm talking to you right now. You couldn't go to Africa, could you? No, I wanted to, but I couldn't. Okay, well, just let's talk about where you were in Hanford. Yeah, I know I tried to get out. No, I didn't want you to get out. <laughs> That's where I wanted you. No, you don't understand, Lord. I spent my whole life trying to get out of Hanford. <laughs> Now, how sad it will be if you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I did my best. I tried to get out of Hanford. Every day I tried to get out of Hanford, tried to get out of California. And the Lord's going to say, well, did you ever think that that's where I put you? 
No. Why would you put me there? And, and so this is the idea. We just want to be faithful. Be faithful, and the Lord will reward you. So looking at this, you get saved. You start assembling with other believers. The foundation of your assembling together ought always to be a regular and systematic Bible study that reveals the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Now, it doesn't mean you can't sometimes have topical Bible studies. It doesn't mean Bible studies have to last for an hour. Uh, it doesn't mean that there can't be different things going on. You know, we don't just come together and, you know, have a 90-minute Bible. So there's a lot of other things that we can do. But ultimately, the bedrock foundation of any church has to be systematic, regular Bible study that reveals the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then each of us in that assembly should encourage everyone to continue, to persevere, to abide. We'll know if we are abiding, if we are also abounding in the fruitful work of the Lord. We're going to give sacrificially of time and talent and treasure, and non-believers will have no choice but to look at us and say, you're like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. Each of us as believers, each of the believers here, we want to be like Jesus. I don't think there's a one of us who doesn't want to bear that designation. We may be ashamed or embarrassed right now that we're not an awful lot like Jesus. We may think of ourselves in that way or belittle ourselves. Lord, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the deepest desire of our heart. We want to truly be like you, and we want to be perceived as being like you so that when people look at us, they see the radical love of God for lost sinners and for wandering sheep. And so, Lord, I pray that we would ask you to refresh our understanding of that and to receive it, Lord. And if you want to show us something in our lives that is unlike Jesus, that doesn't really belong, that, that is blocking that from being seen, then show it to us, Lord, so that it might be removed, taken away, dealt with, so that when we leave this place this morning, without doing anything, just being who we are, people will be able to look at our life and lifestyle, our character, our countenance, and our conduct, and if they have eyes to see and ears to hear, they would see something of Jesus Christ. Do that work, we pray, Lord. It's our desire, and I know it's your desire. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is not a believer, all they need do is believe by grace through faith in you, and they can be saved. You died on the cross and rose from the dead, died for the sins of the world, took all of our sin upon you, offering us your perfect righteousness, and you rose from the dead to prove that you had the power to make that offer. All we need to do is believe that, Lord. And so I pray if there's anyone here in this assembly who has not yet believed in you and received the forgiveness of their sins, that they would do that this morning that as we close, they would come forward and talk to one of our deacons, Lord, pray with them and receive Jesus Christ. It happens from week to week, Lord. I pray that it would happen today. If 
you're here this morning while we're continuing in prayer, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, even as we close, even as I continue to pray for us, just come on down and get with one of the guys and start praying with him and say, yeah, I want Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. I want to know that I'm saved. I've been trusting in something else. I'm trusting in my own works, and now I see that I can't work my way into heaven. I'll never be sure, but I can be sure today. And so if that's you, come down now or in a few minutes as we close and pray with the guys. Now, Father, I do pray your blessing upon all of us. May we just bask and revel in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Love to see you tonight, 6 o'clock. We'll be in here. No child care, but your kids are welcome to join us. Uh, it'll just be a cycle of worship and testimony and prayer, open prayer, so uh, people can participate. Just see what the Lord wants to uh, say to us. Just a time of blessing and really blessing the Lord for His faithfulness, His goodness, and what He's done. It's a time to commemorate uh, coming into the building and being the building of God, the, the thing that He wants to, to reach this community. Part of that, that structure that He has here in Kings County and in Central California to reach this area and the world. And so come on out and be encouraged. Uh, dessert doesn't hurt either, does it? You know, that'll be great. May God bless. May God keep. In Jesus' name, amen.